Good evening. Well, last Thursday I was with you in Blackpool. There were two resignations before we went on air, two resignations whilst we were on air, and a further resignation the next morning. Now, to be fair, three of them were probably sackings for Partygate. But the resignation of Manira Mirza raised some really big questions. She'd been by Boris Johnson's side for 14 years. That's one heck of a long time. And his comments about Jimmy Savile, one of the key points that she raised, though she did say it wasn't just that in isolation. But over the weekend, some new appointments have been made, and one in particular that is very, very important. Another of Boris Johnson's oldest friends, Gito Harry, is in Number 10 Downing Street as his press spokesman. Now, Gito worked with the Prime Minister back when he was the Mayor of London. Is Boris back on track? That's my question to you this evening. Let me know what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. I think far from being back on track. In fact, I think the appointment of Guido Harry tells us everything we need to know. Why do I say that? Well, firstly, Guido Harry is a Remainer, an ardent Remainer, passionately opposed to Brexit. And a man that said that Boris Johnson regretted backing the Brexit campaign because he never believed in it. Interestingly, a view that was shared by Claire Foges in The Times today, again, someone that's known Boris for years, saying Boris never really believed in it. Well, a Remainer is taking over the press operations in Number 10. But if that wasn't bad enough, this is also the same man who was advising Boris on policy as Mayor of London when Boris said that those who illegally had come to the country and were in London should all be given a mass amnesty. So if you're expecting um, anything radical to happen in terms of what's going on in the English Channel, please forget it as quickly as you possibly can. Guido Harry also, of course, briefly worked here at GB News. GB News set up to sort of counter the whole woke council culture that we believe we see on other stations. And of course, it was him that took the knee on air that led to a temporary boycott of many of GB News's most loyal viewers. So if you think that in terms of the culture wars with Guito, Harry and Number 10, Boris is going to fight them, again, you've got another thing coming. And finally, what was Guito Harry doing in between GB News and going to Downing Street? Well, he was working for a lobbying firm in London, a firm called Hawthorne, and guess what they do? They lobby for Huawei the Chinese telecoms company that mercifully will not now have a huge part in our 5G network. You see, I like Gito Harry. He's a very nice bloke. I think it was very witty of him to walk up Downing Street this morning carrying mineral water. It's not that I dislike him as a human being. He's not even vaguely a conservative. And yet that is who Boris Johnson turns to in his hour of need. And folks, here's the problem with Boris Johnson. And here's why I think he really must go. It isn't because of Partygate, bad and arrogant though that looks, and his dissembling in the wake of it has been pretty disgraceful. Now, the real reason is he's turned his back on Conservative voters, on Brexit voters in every way, and if he stays in position, they will lose the next election. Harry's appointment tells me all I need to know. But something else has happened. Um, this evening, which also indicates that Boris is not back on track. This was the leader of the opposition, Sakir Starmer, 
leaving Portcullis House just a couple of hours ago. Have a look at these pictures. So an ugly mob uh, surrounds Keir Starmer, screams abuse at him, uh, and in particular, uh, the claim that Keir Starmer may well have protected paedophiles at the time when he was director for public prosecutions. This, of course, linking directly back to Boris Johnson's comments in the House of Commons about Jimmy Savile. Now, I have to say, in my own political career, I was used to this sort of mob. I had it every day. But it's not the sort of thing we're used to seeing with the leader of the opposition. It represents an ugly side, um, a side of politics that seems to get uglier by the month. But the thought that somehow, if you believe Kwasi Kwarteng this morning during the news rounds, that it's all been settled, new teams in place, we're getting on with the job, I suspect, actually, we're heading back into a huge row. That's what I think. Joining me now is Mark White, GB News's Home and Security Editor. Mark, ugly scenes, uh, as I say, I'm used to them, but, but not kind of what we see much of in Westminster, really. No, um, but I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Boris Johnson will find himself back in the middle of another row over this because what we saw there were really the real-life consequences of remarks made in the Commons that people at the time, including his senior policy advisor that resigned as a result of those comments, were saying were intemperate. They were comments that were shouldn't have been uh, ushered by Boris Johnson, or uttered by, I should say, Boris Johnson. Uh, about You say that, you say that, but uh, there's no question, is there, that the Crown Prosecution Service failed in the case of Jimmy Savile and that Keir Starmer was the boss of the Crown Prosecution Service. So were his comments wrong? Well, if, if, if you're taking it from the point of view that he now says he was, which was to compare the overall leadership and responsibility of the Crown Prosecution Service to his overall leadership as he was being accused uh, with yep. regard to Partygate, then he has a point. Of course, he was the head of the Crown Prosecution Service. But it's such an emotive issue, uh, everything around Jimmy Savile, that not everyone but, you know, buys into the subtlety of these arguments. And when the mob is involved, as they were this evening, yeah, two, down at Westminster, the, had, then it's been, very dangerous. There have been two arrests made. So let's just get to the heart of this, because I know that Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid, when they were asked about this, uh, and Rishi particularly said he wouldn't have said these words, the defence is that Boris clarified the position, as opposed to apologising for the position, and that was why Manira Mirza resigned. That was the key point, that he didn't apologise. So, but just to get this absolutely right for our viewers, so Keir Starmer was in charge of the Crown Prosecution Service, but it wasn't his decision not to prosecute Jimmy Savile. It wasn't his decision. That was further down the chain. But when you are at the top of an organisation <clears throat> like the Crown Prosecution Service, then, of course, you take ultimate re responsibility. And there was an apology from the CPS at the time in the name uh, of Keir Starmer. Uh, but, of course, uh, as I say, the subtleties of those arguments yeah. are often lost with those who just directly want to point the finger <laughs> at Keir Starmer over Jimmy Savile and don't want to make a verbal point, but would actually like to make a physical point. 
and clearly incidents like this outside Westminster with what has happened outside Westminster and elsewhere involving politicians, members of parliament. You said yourself, mm. you've known this, you've suffered this worse. kind of intimidation and violence for years. It is getting worse. The, the discourse is getting much worse, I think, in terms of people crossing over from a period in time where they were happy to heckle, uh, but mm. now the heckle has moved on from that and it's physical confrontation that is actually the, the goal of those who want to make a point. I suspect Mark will be hearing a lot more about this tomorrow, somehow. Thank you very much indeed. Well, joining me is Brendan Clark-Smith, Conservative Member of Parliament for Bassett Law, one of the 2019 Red Wall intake. Brendan, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Thanks for having me on. No, not at all. And welcome. So, you know, we've got Gito Harry, uh, a Remainer, uh, pro-China, uh, pro-open borders, uh, now acting as the Prime Minister's press spokesman. Uh, and yet we have Kwasi Kwarteng and others going around the place saying, everything's fine, it's all sorted, we're getting on with the job. Let me ask you straight, is Boris Johnson back on track? I don't think he's re ever really been off track, Nigel. Um, I, th I, th I think there's plenty of achievements that the Prime Minister's had so far. And yes, of course, we've had a difficult period at the moment. But I think the things that we put forward to people at the election, I've certainly still got a lot of faith in those things. And yes, at, at times we need a bit of a reset. There's been a clear out at number 10. Um, and there's lots of plans there, lots of new people coming in. So I wouldn't say he's uh, gone off track, Nigel. No, I think actually this is part of a, a new start, really, for us all. When you think of what people in Bassett Law voted for, uh, not just in the referendum, but when they voted for you in December 2019, they didn't vote for the kind of politics that the Prime Minister's new press spokesman represents, did they? Yeah, I, th I think the, the key point here as well is, is that the Prime Minister's press secretary isn't a politician. He's not a member of parliament. He's not there to set policy. He's there to do a, a job in communications. Now, the taking the knee thing's been mentioned as well, Nigel, and I've had the odd fruity thing to say about it myself. I think my, my views are very similar to yours on that issue. <laughs> um, we are quite a broad church in the Conservative Party. As, as you know, uh, again, with leave and remain, I, I'm from a constituency where nearly 70-odd percent of people voted to leave. I've been a strong leave campaigner, but then I'm working with a lot of people in Westminster who, who voted Remain. And I, I try to use the phrase that we're all Brexiteers now, and it's about that unity. And I, th I think you need that kind of broad spread and be able to bring people together. Now, of course, we've also had Steve Barclay, who's been appointed. He's very well respected across the House. And of course, Steve was a Brexiteer. So yeah. it's about having balance as well, I think. No, that's a fair point, And I get that. It's just that he's not going to be acting as a spokesman for the Prime Minister. And I must, I must, 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 Brendan, ask you, uh, these Jimmy Savile comments have caused a huge row and now some pretty ugly scenes outside Portcullis House this evening. And you and I both know that tomorrow's newspapers are going to be filled with acres and acres of comment about this, pointing the finger of blame at Johnson. And they're going to say that he's coarsened political discourse and that's led to this behaviour. What are your feelings on the comments that he made? Well, the thing is, it's completely out of order what's happened to Keir Starmer in, in the car there, and you should never have to tolerate that. And as you said, Nigel, you, you've had this abuse for many years yeah. yourself, as, as, many of us, as many of us have. And I was even accosted at the train station on the way here 
today being told that I'm going to be taken to Nuremberg because of uh, COVID and so on. And of course, I was I was a Plan B rebel as well, so I've been pushing back a fair bit on on a number of those things. But with the Jimmy Savile comment, really, I, th I think it was just summed up very well a moment ago. When you're the head of an organization, you take ultimate responsibility for it, even if you weren't personally involved in that. Um, Keir Starmer, in fairness to him, uh, has apologized for the failings of the CPS while he was in charge with this and, and numerous other things there. So that was the point that the prime minister was trying to make. I think you could have an argument whether the whether the statement was the right place to do it, whether it's more of a PMQ, PMQ's thing, more of a punch and Judy thing. And I know some people don't like it, but uh, I certainly don't condone the behaviour of people doing that for which oh, there's, no. there's no excuse at all. No, I wasn't in any way condoning that behaviour, certainly not. Yeah. I was just saying that the Prime Minister is going to get some pretty serious abuse uh, over this. Um, and finally, Brendan, um, will Boris Johnson still be Prime Minister in a few months' time? I'm sure he will. I'm sure he will. I, th I think it's been uh, overstated. Um, what, what do they say about people's demise being overstated, the old saying? But uh, yeah, I mean, there's all this about letters going in and, and nobody really has a clue what the actual number is, Nigel. I think there's a bit of uh, sort of freestyling with those numbers. I've, I've actually found people have maybe calmed down a little bit with it now, looked at it a little bit more of a rounded perspective, I think. And uh, what we actually want to see is people getting on with things. We want to see the cost of living lowered we want to see the energy bills sorted out yeah uh, we want to get on with making brexit a success and there's yeah. still some loose ends to tie up there i would say as as well and we don't want this mickey mouse stuff uh, in the mainstream media all the time constantly so well, I think people want to move on doesn't mean they've forgotten doesn't mean that you condone behavior that uh, is wrong and people shouldn't be punished for that if there's something is wrong but i think at the time you know what the public wants and what the press wants sometimes are two very different things well brendan clark smith i hear what you have to say very very clearly i suspect moving on from the jimmy savile comments and keir starmer may be difficult we thank you very much indeed for joining us here on gb news this evening in a moment we go to ottawa where a state of emergency has been declared because of the truckers protests we'll find out more Well, is Boris back on track? It doesn't really feel like it to me. Hopefully I'm not being unfair. Hetty says the only thing he knows how to get right is telling porkies. Well, there's a cynic for you. Another viewer says just a shadow of the positive, approachable character I voted for. So disappointed. Sarah says, I think he'll be fine and good. Better the devil you know at the moment. Let's all have restrictions lifted and normality set in before we start to hold everyone accountable for the past two years of misery. Look, part of this is party gate. Part of it is the fact that he wasn't in control of his team and they behaved in the most arrogant way while setting the rules for the rest of the country. Another part of it is that at every twist and turn, Boris Johnson's done his best to avoid telling the truth. But the point I'm making tonight is a much bigger and more important point, and that is Brexit voters, 2019 Red Wall Tory voters and traditional Conservatives feel completely let down by his policies from net zero onwards. Alan says, time Boris left and took the green energy agenda and taxes with him. Ian says... Boris is not even on the trail yet, never mind on track. 
Right, now this is really interesting because we were expecting back in December, early December, the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, to give us a plan. And the plan was going to be how the six million people who were waiting for surgical procedures, how we were going to get that whole thing back on track. That got shelved. Today, we were expecting the announcement, but we're told that it isn't going to happen. Today, Sajid Javid said, we're now working with the NHS to get some tough targets so that we're able to deliver for patients and also for the taxpayer. Well, you could say that, I suppose, on any day of the year in any government for the last 75 years. The reason that's been given as to why we have not got this master plan for sorting out the backlog is because of the Omicron wave. Now, I'm going to suggest that actually hospitalizations from the Omicron wave are no worse than a winter when we get a bad outbreak of flu and that this is a pretty weak and poor excuse. And I, since the first show I did here in July, I've said I think we're heading for a very serious crisis in the NHS in this country and even in confidence in the NHS and I still believe I'm right. Well, joining me is Roy Liddy, former NHS Trust Chairman and Health Commentator. Roy, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. So early December, we were expecting the big grand statement on how we're going to tackle the backlog. That was nudged forward until today. Today it's not happening. Some say it's a row with the Treasury over money, although they seem to dispute that. Um, but surely, surely, and please tell me I'm wrong, but surely to blame the Omicron wave, that's not much of an excuse, is it? No, it isn't. It's ridiculous. Um, the, the, I know for a fact that the NHS has written a plan. I know for a fact that the targets have been agreed. I know for a fact it's been agreed by the senior NHS people, uh, some of the, the uh, chief executives of the big trusts. I know for a fact... Uh, well, well, for a lot of the facts of what's in it, and I know for a fact that it's that it's been agreed. So uh, it's been parked. There have been a couple of delays. I think one of the delays was was attributable to the the early days of the Omicron surge, and no one was really sure whether or not the when the plan would come into action. But the thing is, Nigel, that a lot of the trusts now are back to pre-COVID activity levels anyway. So, I mean, they, they, we've got the plan. The government's come up with the money. They're just waiting for the G and go to get going on it. And frankly, we're getting to the point now where I'm starting to think, well, why do we need a plan? We know we've got a load of operations to do. The NHS will roll up its sleeves and get on with it as best it can. You know, what else can it do? It's ridiculous. I can't see any reason at all why the plan hasn't been published other than the other excuse, which was, well, there were three excuses. One, it was Omicron, COVID, nonsense. Yep. One, it was the, the Treasury disagreed with the plan and the targets weren't tough enough. Not true. The money, was, the money is there. Three, there's a row between number 10 Downing Street and number 11 Downing Street, and that's probably where the truth is. <laughs> well, there are lots of rows going on in Downing Street, it would seem. Well, yeah. But, but Roy... <sighs> You know, since you and I first spoke when I joined here at GB News, we've seen the waiting list go up. We're told it's now six million plus. I mean, is there any 
realistic plan to attack that waiting list? Well, look, the, the plan itself, as I understand it, is it's a three to five year recovery program. Here's the problem, Nigel. The NHS has the capacity to do about 10 million operations a year. Mm. Um, normally, two million of those are, are emergencies, uh, accidents, aortic stuff, you know, the really life threatening. Yeah. It has to be done. The eight million are what we call uh, elective procedures. Uh, these are things like hips and knees and all the stuff that's on the waiting list. Now, the NHS has the capacity to do that. Now, on top of that, because of COVID and for reasons we understand, there's a backlog now of about six, maybe seven million. On top of that, there's what I would call the Donald Rumsfeld waiting list. That's the known unknowns. These are the people we know haven't come forward. We don't know how many there are, but we know there's a shed load of them. So, you know, it could be two million, it could be five. There are various estimates. Let's take the low estimate of two million. So if we've got seven million people we know are waiting, if we know during the course of a year, we've got to do eight million anyway, seven and eight is 15. If you add Donald Rumsfeld's group on top of that, you're looking at 17 million and then that's this year and then next year there's going to be another 8 million and another 8 million so by the time the election comes the nhs is going to have to do about 30 million operations so what you're saying is so what you're saying is actually unless something radically changes this backlog is going to get worse Yes. I mean, the capacity issue is the problem and the workforce issue is the problem. See, COVID's sort of given us a collective amnesia. We we forget about what the NHS was like before COVID. It had had 10 years of flatline funding. Health Education England had pretty much put the brakes on training. Uh, There was no new capital investment in kit or equipment. The NHS went into COVID with fewer beds per head of population than most of Europe and fewer staff per head of population than most of Europe. So now we're in COVID, everybody worked their backsides off, and now we're coming out of COVID and everybody's thinking, well, how do we do this? Well, I'll tell you how we do it. We, we reshape the NHS, which is in the recovery plan, which is where we, we, we switch to regional um, uh, uh, trauma centres. So you don't go maybe to your local A&E if, if it's a serious trauma. You turn some of your local hospitals into specialist hip units or specialist knee units so that they get an uninterrupted operating list every day, just doing knees and what have you. Other places do, uh, you know, other bits of it. Other hospitals become day case hospitals. So, you know, if if you think you might go to your local hospital for whatever it is you need, well, you may not and you get help to go to somewhere else. I mean, there's a radical plan. There's a hell of a lot more use of, of IT and remote consultations, particularly for post-operative outpatients, which can be done very successfully video on video. So the plan is all there. I've, I mean, the NHS effectively could get on with a lot of it. Some of it does need some structural reorganisation. Wow. And, of course, it needs maybe government. Maybe government's holding them back, Roy. I don't know. Thank you once again for joining us. We will talk again because I know this problem is not going to go away in a hurry. Now, a what the Farage moment. I mean, this stuff just never ends, does it? A leading law firm which represents some of the UK's richest men and women is set to ditch, dear sir and madam, from its letters. Yes, Withers LLP, which has got offices all around the world, including London, has urged its lawyers to stop using the traditional introduction in a bid to be more gender neutral. 
It comes after one partner of the renowned firm took to social media to campaign for an end to the use of the phrase, dear sirs, on letters. She said that the phrase was unnecessarily gendered and dehumanising and claimed that it perpetuates discrimination and bias. Now, lawyers at the firm, which promotes itself as acting for 70% of the people on the Sunday Times rich list, have reportedly been advised to drop, dear sir and madam, completely. A spokesman at Withers said, we have guidance available to help people address their correspondence in the most appropriate way for the recipient. And they are free to adopt this if they wish. Well, isn't that just absolutely, completely and utterly marvellous? Perhaps you think us heading in to a gender-neutral world is the right way forward. I have to tell you, I've yet to be convinced. Now, yesterday marked the 70th anniversary of the accession of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II to the throne. 70 years. 70 years. Yeah, it's many months before we celebrate the 70th anniversary of a coronation, but the king is dead, long live the queen. That is what happened 70 years ago on the 6th of February. And the queen always says that it's a moment for reflection because, of course, her father had died at the age of 56, very, very young. And just a moment, a thought to reflect on how absolutely astonishing, astonishing she has been over the course of 70 years. It has been a truly extraordinary reign. We've been incredibly lucky. Uh, what she does for us in terms of our status around the world, the value that gives to our nation is frankly incalculable. Whether anybody that follows her can even be half as good remains to be seen. Now, Canada. Extraordinary what's been going on in Canada. The truckers' protest. We're now in day 10 of the truckers' protest. A state of emergency has now been declared in Ottawa. Um, and that's because the trucks, the crowds, are blocking Ottawa completely. Last Wednesday, I said to you that the Prime Minister had actually you know, been taken to a safe house. And I don't support mob rule. I don't support any use of violence. But perhaps you'll agree with me, these people look to be protesting pretty peaceably against vaccine mandates. And I believe they've got a right to do this. But an extraordinary twist to all of this is that GoFundMe, on GoFundMe, money was raised for the truckers' protest. They raised eight million US dollars. And GoFundMe didn't like this. GoFundMe said that they support peaceful protests, but they believe the intention of the Freedom Convoy 2022 fundraiser, when it was first created, they now saw evidence from law enforcement that the previously peaceful demonstration had become an occupation with violence and other unlawful activity. And to begin with, they talked about giving the money to other charities. They're now going to refund it directly. So, folks, you pay your money, you take your choice. Either you think GoFundMe are right to have done this on the basis that this occupation, frankly, is illegal and wrong, or you think, once again, this is big tech censoring what they see something as being unacceptable. There is nothing, folks, unacceptable about saying you're against vaccine 
mandates. A few more thoughts on Boris Johnson and whether he's fixed the problem, whether he's back on track. John says, no, he isn't, and he won't be, as his behaviour and competence in the office of PM is way below the minimum standards. Geraint says, Boris has never been on track. Never mind back on it, Burton says, he was never off track. Hmm, not so sure about that. Another viewer says, back on track, only if he's playing with his Thomas the Tank Engine set. And finally, John says, the captain will not leave the ship. Well, no, he said, it will take, actually, you know, an armoured tank brigade to get him out of Downing Street. Well, we'll see. I still think he won't be there in the summer, but I could be wrong. Well, in a moment, joining me, somebody who is a supporter of the Conservative Party, a supporter of free speech, a supporter of the free schools movement, and someone that I've had a drink with before. Joining me on Talking Pints in just a moment is Toby Young. The GB News Tavern has now been declared open. It's Talking Pines, and I'm joined by Toby Young. Toby, welcome Good to, to the programme. Now, back in 2012, I'm going to embarrass him now, I really am. Back in 2012, we met at a party. You seem to be somewhat overexcited at this party and challenged me <laughs> to some ridiculous juvenile concept. <laughs> of a drinking contest. And I did say, Toby, I don't think it's a very good idea. Well, in the following week's Spectator, this is what Toby Young wrote. I was bleeding at this point, having fallen and hit my head, though you probably wouldn't have noticed on account of the fact my suit and shirt were liberally covered in red wine. Not a good look for a man approaching his sixth decade. Nigel was his usual, usual dapper self, whereas I was lurching around like an OAP on roller skates. I just thought I'd begin by embarrassing you, that's all. Cheers, nice well, to see you. Cheers, mate. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, think, I think I may know your secret. of. How, I mean, because we, we did have, of course, your response to my juvenalia challenging you to a drinking yes. contest was to immediately accept. Um, and uh, and you, then, you then promptly drank me under the table. But I think I know your secret because... I suspect that there isn't really any alcohol in that. I think that's a non-alcoholic beer, and I think you may have been drinking non-alcoholic beverages back in 2012, which no. is how you drank me under the table. I was drinking... No, not actual- true, Toby, <laughs> not true. And I was actually drinking for January alcohol-free lager, but I'm now drinking the real okay. thing. I've got to tell you. Now, Toby, you know, conservative commentator, activist, campaigner, um, before we get to the big, big things that you've done in your life, let's just get right up to date with what's been happening for the last two years, the restriction of our freedom, lockdowns. You felt pretty strongly about this from the start, haven't you? Yes, I felt pretty strongly about it. Um, um, I wrote about it back in March 2020. I I was one of the first journalists to criticise the lockdown, Mm. suggest that it might cause more harm than good, um, and immediately got monstered, was called a Nazi on Twitter. Some people even called for me to be imprisoned because they thought any dissent at that point from the kind of COVID orthodoxy was dangerous to the public. Um, And uh, because I found it difficult to discuss this in the mainstream media, I set up my own website now called The Daily Skeptic. um, And um, it's become a kind of forum, a meeting. And does that get you around being sort of banned or suspended by Facebook and Twitter and all these people? Well, um, Facebook has occasionally flagged posts that we've um, sent to Facebook from the website as containing misinformation. Um, but actually, when you 
drill down into it and try and find out what it is they're claiming is misinformation. It's terribly unclear. There's no right of appeal. The whole process is completely opaque uh, and we think completely unfair, but there isn't any way in which you can appeal it, seemingly. Um, uh, Twitter have been a bit more tolerant. Um, YouTube have occasionally taken down my videos. They took down a video discussion I was involved in uh, quite close to the beginning of the first lockdown, and I was able to appeal that by pointing out that the other person in the discussion they were accusing mm. uh, of promoting misinformation about COVID was, in fact, the recipient of the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 2014. So when I pointed that out, they put it back up again. <laughs> but, of course, you know, someone that's never been scared of having rigorous intellectual debate, and I, and I just love this, you know, the fact that you authored a book published in 2001, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. <laughs> I mean, you are an agent provocateur, aren't you, by nature? Well, you know, I don't set out... Um, to, well, if you write a, a book with that title, I suggest the, the, that the, you do. The, the, it, well, it, was, it was a book describing um, uh, my failure to take Manhattan as a glossy magazine journalist in yeah. the mid-90s. But, I, you know, I genuinely thought when I went to New York, I'd soon have, you know, the big apple in the palm of my hand. You know, I was going to be the next kind of journalist to conquer Manhattan. And it all just went horribly wrong, but not intentionally so. It just it was. And, and that's why it became a kind of it was it's a comic memoir yeah. because I didn't intend to mess up. It just bad things just Is started happening to me. Some Brits work on that side of the pond and some don't. James Corden is the most massive success. Yes. I don't know why, but he is. I know, but he is, you yes. know. I think you've translated better in the United States than I have. I mean, you're a bit of a celeb over there. I've had a lot of fun over there. Yeah. A lot of... I, I've got some quite well-known friends over there, and, that, and that's, perhaps, that's perhaps helped me a little bit, you know. But, it's, but, I mean, the thing that I'm really interested in, Toby, is this whole free speech thing. We've kind of touched on it in the last yeah. few minutes. Uh, the free speech union, cancel culture, the attempt to rewrite virtually every piece of British history. What are we up against here? I mean, are we actually up against that old virus of Marxism that is coming back to try and destroy our identity? Uh, are we up against just a, a media and social media dominated by the left? You know, who's the enemy here? I think it's, um, it's, a, it's multifactorial. I think it's partly um, the triumph of um, uh, cultural Marxists, particularly in in cultural terms, not political terms. Um, I think it's partly the decline of Christianity, and so something has filled the kind of God-shaped hole left by the ebbing of the Christian tide. And that, the that's woke... climate change, isn't it? Well, it, it was climate change, um, uh, and then it was conforming with all the COVID nonsense, and now it's, um, now it's, it's the church of woke and wokery. Um, uh, I think it's... I think often when asked, people ask me this question, I think you're coming at it from the wrong, wrong angle. It's not, well, what's happened to erode free speech protections? I think the natural human default position is not to tolerate people who challenge your sacred values, who seem to transgress on what's really important to any community. The natural human impulse is to expel them, to cast them out. You know, and that's happened going down through the ages, and we've seen it happen in various totalitarian societies in the 20th century. Uh, that's the natural default human reaction, I think, to dissent. And it takes an enormous amount of work, an enormous amount of history and tradition, customs, institutions to protect free speech. And what we've seen is the erosion, the gradual deterioration of those protections. And so we're just defaulting to our much more naturally intolerant state. Interesting. I, think. I mean, I, you know, I, I was, I was, I suppose, uh, in a sense, in the forefront of this, because I, I thought we should leave the European Union, and no-one thought we should leave the European Union. And, and yes, you're, you're sort of cast out. But I thought we'd, 
got past all of that. I thought the point of two world wars and huge sacrifice was that we could agree to disagree and do so in a civilised way. You're saying that's really quite a modern thing for mankind. I think it is fairly modern. I think it, 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 it's not more than about 200 years old. Okay. Um, and uh, we, we had a kind of golden period um, between, you know, the retirement of the Lord Chamberlain as the kind of censor of our mm. theatre uh, in the kind of mid-1960s up until about five, maybe ten years ago. A golden period of free speech. And we're now seemingly retreating from that. I mean, I thought free speech was in dire peril in uh, 2020, two years ago, almost to the day that I set up the Free Speech Union. Yeah. And I didn't think things could get any worse. But actually, they've got worse by an order of magnitude, partly as a result of the pandemic, which has seen lots of people who dissent from the prevailing narrative, mm. cast out, cancelled, silenced, no platformed, and partly as a result of the BLM protests oh. resulting from George Floyd's death. Uh, and that has meant that I mean, lots of uh, members of the Free Speech Union have found themselves being cancelled, being targeted, being put through um, various investigations at work because they've inadvertently said something that has upset BLM activists. If you challenge any element of that analysis, that worldview, you're, you're cast as racist I, and cancelled. I found this extraordinary. You know, when the George Floyd thing happened and within 24 hours there are protests in London, I mean, don't tell me there wasn't a degree of organisation and anticipation of an event that would be used. And because of my time in America, which we touched on earlier, you know, I'd seen BLM. I understood what it was. I knew that it was an avowedly Marxist organisation that wanted to bring down Western capitalism, Western civilization, defunding the police force, you know, anarchist, Marxist, dangerous. I knew all of these things. And that wasn't just my opinion. It was on their blooming website. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet when I went on TV programmes in this country, I mean, it was as if I'd provoked some sort of extraordinary outrage that yeah. logic, fact had gone out of the window with this hysteria. Um, you see, I wonder, Toby, I wonder whether the irrationality of what happened over George Floyd. And you know, we all find the way in which he died despicable. That's not in doubt or question or debate. We're not saying any of that. But I've really wondered hard whether this is because our education system is no longer teaching critical thinking. You know, I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't say my school career was particularly distinguished. I didn't go to university, but I was at least taught, you know, whether it was in economics or geography or history or English or those you know, humanity type yep. subjects. You know, I was at least taught from sort of 14, 15, 16, you know, here's a big question. Here are two fundamental uh, philosophical approaches to, to, to dealing with that question. They're radically different. Uh, but, you know, you make your own mind up. Yeah, I, I don't think it's just that schools and universities, and I think particularly universities, are no longer teaching students, school children, how to think critically, how to evaluate different claims, how to measure them against the evidence. It's they're actively encouraging children and students not to think that way. Yes. I mean, if, if, yes. if, if yes. for instance, yes. if you dissent from the idea that Britain is systemically 
racist, mm. that all mm. black Britons mm. are treated as second-class citizens and don't have anything like the same opportunities across multiple fields as white people. If you challenge that idea, if you even claim that we're a less racist society than we were 25 years ago, without saying everything's rosy in the garden, just that things have improved a bit in the past 25 years, that can get you cancelled at most universities across the country. And I know this because the Free Speech Union gets cries for help from students and academics who've challenged precisely that uh, bit of dogma. Um, we get 25 requests for help a week, and we end up helping about half of them, and sometimes we're successful. And you yourself finished up being cancelled, didn't you? you know, I did, you, yeah. You, you, you were moving into a government position, and you, you'd done some amazing work on free schools prior to that, but you were described as misogynistic and homophobic. What had you done, Toby? To... It, was, it was mainly things I'd said on Twitter, sophomoric late at night after a couple of glasses of this. Um, and back in, you know, 2010, Twitter was more like WhatsApp. You were speaking to your mates, and it was a bit like or you thought, banter down or the you pub. Thought you were. Or so I thought. Yeah. And I hadn't yeah. realised that this would all be stored, you know, in yeah. perpetuity, yeah. ready for the offence archaeologist to start <laughs> sifting through as soon as I was appointed to a government job. I mean, it wasn't a particularly big government job. I was one of 50 non-executive directors of a new university regulator. We are going to meet four times a year. It was unpaid. But it was a big story at the time. It was, it was, the, it was the biggest story of the week, I yeah. mean, incredibly. Yeah. Um, and... Um, um, and that was in the beginning of 2018. I decided naively uh, to apologise and step down from that particular position, uh, thinking that would draw a line under it. But in fact, that was just like throwing red meat to a shoal of piranha fish. And the same outrage mob then came for me in four other positions. And I ended up losing five positions. I was rel well and truly cancelled. Even lost my full-time job, couldn't pay the mortgage. And uh, it was partly being in that situation, feeling isolated, not knowing who to turn to for help, for impartial advice, legal advice, career advice. I mean, your career is literally burning to the ground in front of your eyes and you're panicking. How do I stop this? How do I put it out? And it was the absence of any body to turn to, to give me that kind of advice and support that was the wellspring of the idea for the Free Speech Union. Yeah. So now if someone finds themselves in that position, they can reach out to us and we'll give them the kind of help that I really needed back then. This level of hatred is extraordinary, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, the, the odd thing about it, Nigel, the irony is that the people who are the most vituperative and unpleasant on Twitter think of themselves as the nice guys. If you th look at all the trans rights activists that went after J.K. Rowling just because she wants to defend a traditional definition of the word woman. Um, the unbelievable vituperation, the nastiness, the unpleasantness of all that venom directed towards her on Twitter and elsewhere by the people who think of themselves as yes, the nice yes, people yes, in the this debate. And the it's like they've given themselves licence yeah, the to be really unpleasant. The Liberals, they were wholly illiberal. <laughs> we saw it during the Brexit debate as but, well. No, well, we did. We did. But, you know, through history, Toby, social pendulums swing back and forth, and we've you know seen this, and one thinks of perhaps 17th century Britain being a very good example. Mm. Where we go from, you know, Puritanism to Hogarth yes. Gin Lane in the space yes. of about 20 years yes. or whatever it is. Yes. Um, I'm not saying either are good, by the way. But, but does this pendulum swing back? I hope so. Um, uh, it could just be that um, we're, we're in a particularly puritanical phase and uh, the cycle 
will eventually turn the other way. But you're right, things do change. Um, and that's why I think it's so short-sighted of people on the left to be calling for more censorship of things like jokes. The number of progressive left-wing comedians that have actually called for Jimmy Carr to be prosecuted, reported him to the police yeah. for this uh, inappropriate joke. He Which told. it was. It was, it was inappropriate, yeah, but it yeah. was a joke. And it, it, yeah. the state should not be deciding, you know, what jokes people can tell and what they can't. And, and But, the, but the, the reason this is so short-sighted, Ira Glasser, the legendary ex-head of the American Civil Liberties Union, back when it was a really militant pro-free speech organisation, said the trouble with speech restrictions is they're a bit like poison gas. You're on the battlefield, you've got the enemy in your sights, and it seems like a good idea to release the poison gas. And then the wind changes. Mm. And what's so uh, uh, naive, I think, about all these left-wing, progressive, woke activists calling for censorship Mm. is that one day, and in the not-too-distant future, it'll be turned against them. It happened to us, the first day of Battle of Loose, 1915. It can happen. These things can go wrong. Finally, Toby, quickly, you know, you're, you're a, a known conservative supporter. Um, you've obviously been around Boris Johnson very often through Spectator and everything else and like him. Is he going to survive? I think that his chances of fighting the next general election, which I think he'll, you know, will probably be sooner rather than later, particularly if he's there to call it, I think about... Two weeks ago, they were slightly higher than 50%. I think now they're slightly lower than 50%, but I wouldn't place his prospects any lower than that. OK, well, we'll see. Toby Young, listen, very passionate defence of free speech. I'm horrified by what you were put through, but you're a brave guy, and I wish you and the Free Speech Union well, and thank you for joining me on Talking Park. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we've got a minute and a half left. Let's go through your barrage, the Farage questions. Chris asks, is the EU using NATO, the UK and the US to further its expansionist ambitions? Let me tell you, the coup that happened in the Ukraine in 2014 in Kiev were people in the square waving EU flags, receiving pre-accession aid. The expansionism of the European Union and NATO has been wholly unnecessary and very destabilising. More on that in the next few days. Andrew asks, what do you do to relax after this programme? I'm going to go for a beer with Toby. Raymond asks, if you were Prime Minister, would you have allowed the useless Pretty Patel to remain in her position? I like Pretty Patel. I've always liked Pretty Patel. But I'm afraid, don't promise things that you can't deliver. ECHR, do we have to leave ECHR next? Is that the next thing, Toby, we have to do? Well, one argument against that is that at least... Poland, Hungary and some other countries with right-of-centre governments appoint judges to the ECHR. And so the ECHR might be less woke on balance than a British Supreme Court. Ah, so if we come out of the ECHR, we, we trust our laws it entirely. Might be less bad. <laughs> might be less might bad. Might be less bad. Adrian asks, do we abolish the House of Lords? Yes, we do. It's bloated. It's ludicrous. It's packed with hundreds and hundreds of David Cameron's mates and Blair's mates. I mean, the hereditary system may have been bad. At least they came from all around the country. This mob all live in the same few postcodes in central London. I am done. Back with you tomorrow.